This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each episode, we pick a new book in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. Regular listeners, if they've been kind enough to stick around, will have noticed a rather long hiatus in this podcast. After a couple years of keeping up a fairly consistent monthly schedule, The first year of PhD work hit me like a bag of bricks, but I am back and I hope to release new episodes with a bit more regularity. After all, there's no shortage of challenging and important new publications in this field that I hope to highlight here. And today is no exception. That's because I'm joined by Jace Weaver, Franklin Professor of Native American Studies and Religion at the University of Georgia, to discuss his brand new book from the University of North Carolina Press entitled The Red Atlantic. American Indigenes and the Making of the Modern World, 1000 to 1927. That's an expansive range of time, but Weaver moves across it with the intellectual dexterity and interdisciplinary chops readers of his more than 10 books will have come to expect. Over this long durée, Weaver argues, indigenous people, their ideas, their culture, their products, and their labor traverse the Atlantic, reconfiguring the destinies of peoples on both sides of the great ocean. Like Paul Gilroy's transformational 1993, The Black Atlantic, Modernity and Double Consciousness, Weaver's new paradigm is sure to launch numerous further studies. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Jace Weaver, welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Well, it's been almost exactly three years, I think, since we discussed your last book, Notes from a Miner's Canary, which is actually a nice reminder of how long I've been doing this program for. I think you're one of the first people I interviewed. Uh, Today, we're discussing your newest book. It's just out from the University of North Carolina Press. It's called The Red Atlantic, American Indigenes and the Making of the Modern World, 1000 to 1927. Uh, The ideas in this work, if not yet the particular project or interventions, is clearly something you've uh, been kicking around for a great deal of time. In fact, uh, in the book's preface, you recount a personal narrative about the hours you spent uh, as a child poring over books and maps of the Atlantic Ocean that your your father, who was a merchant marine, brought home. Um, In that broader sweep, I'm hoping you can talk about how you came to think about this project, um, both personally and then later um, in terms of the scholarship, the, the, the conferences, the articles that, that led finally to the publication of this book? Okay. Um, well, uh, I had just reread back in uh, 2010, I guess, early 2010, uh, Paul Gilroy's The Black Atlantic. 
And I was struck by how, despite how wonderful the book is and how it reframed Atlantic world history and Atlantic world studies uh, to include uh, diasporic Africans and African ideas, that it still marginalized American indigenes, Western Hemispheric indigenes. Now, of course, that wasn't Gilroy's project, uh, so it wasn't surprising. But then I was uh, on an airplane, and I was reading an early English novel, one of the earliest English novels, called uh, The Female American, which is anonymous. It's supposedly, like Robinson Crusoe, is written by its protagonist, in this case, uh, a woman named Eliza Unka Wingfield. Uh, and it suddenly popped into my mind this idea of a red Atlantic to be a correlative to uh, Gilroy's Atlantic. And then I um, did some research to make sure no one had conceived of it exactly the way I had, and they had not. Uh, and then in the fall of 2010, I organized a conference at the University of Georgia, where I am. Uh, we put out a call for papers and uh, organized a conference on the subject, and it brought in a number of scholars from Canada and, and across the United States. Uh, and it became apparent that although there were a number of scholars, both emergent and established, who were thinking in kind of the same grooves, to use kind of a, an old record album analogy, uh, that there wasn't a common language to describe what they were thinking about. And the Red Atlantic gave them um, that language and became kind of an organizing principle. Hmm. How did the Atlantic world uh, as a as an organizing tool of scholarship? I mean, even before Paul Gilroy, um, how did that come to be, and how, how does it sort of conceptualized? And then and then how are you uh, intervening upon that uh, predominant notion of the Atlantic world? Sure. Uh, the Atlantic world history is really a product of the Cold War, like American studies. American studies came about after World War II, or at the close of World War II, uh, in order to study and promote American culture or American civilization. Um, and, and, and that became an organizing principle. In a similar way, the, at the close of World War II, what's often referred to now in a very hackneyed way as the special relationship between Great Britain and the United States, they expected an Atlantic basin, Western Europe and the Americas, as dominated by an Anglo-American alliance. And out of that grew, of course, NATO. And scholars began to promote the idea of the Atlantic Ocean as kind of a new Mediterranean. 
the birthplace of the modern world in the same way that the Mediterranean was the cradle of Western civilization before that. And it was predominantly uh, Western European and North American. And uh, David Armitage, historian at Harvard, in reviewing uh, a book uh, uh, three years ago called The Many-Headed Hydra, uh, titled his review, The Red Atlantic. By that he meant uh, radical or revolutionary because the many-headed hydra was about revolution in the Atlantic world. And he said in that review, until recently you could have your Atlantic history in any color so long as it was white. Mm. Gilroy then was a response to this white Atlantic history, if you will. And then the Red Atlantic is a follow-on on that. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, there, there were some scholarship um, that you point out uh, in the middle of the 20th century or a bit later that did document um, indigenous people from the Americas who traveled the Atlantic or who went to Europe. Um, but, but you say that this is, you know, the, the, the implicit attitude in some of the scholarship, at least, uh, is... Is this sort of, isn't that cute? A few Indians did go to Europe, um, you know, contrary to what we might think. That's obviously not what you're doing here. What you're proposing here is something much larger in scope and in significance in the development of uh, modernity and the modern world that the Atlantic World Studies is all about, from which uh, indigenous people have in the scholarship and in popular discourse been so often um, written out. Uh, right. The I wouldn't say in that scholarship, uh, and, and what I'm thinking about when I talk about this are things like Alden Vaughn's work, which documents uh, American indigenous peoples that went to Europe in his, or particularly Great Britain, in mm -hmm. his book uh, Transatlantic Encounters and some others. Uh, they take it seriously. It's really the mm -hmm. response I from see. other Atlantic world scholars mm -hmm. to their work. But but yes, what I'm proposing here is a more more thoroughgoing re-envisioning of Atlantic world history. The way Gilroy re-centered it on diasporic Af Africans, I'm re-centering it on Western hemispheric indigenes. And, and it has a number of parts. It's not just physical travel of bodies of indigenous peoples around the Atlantic Basin. It's that at the most fundamental level, native peoples here in this hemisphere were uh, part of uh, the making of this in that they uh, looted wealth from the New World, uh, fueled the development of a resource-depleted Europe, uh, Western hemispheric indigenes ideas and technology like terrace farming and the suspension bridge uh, were carried back to Europe. Uh, of course, foodstuffs, 46% of the world's table vegetables today were uh, eaten and cultivated by Indians here before the coming of Europeans. Things as fundamental as potatoes and tomatoes. Uh, turkeys, of course, were carried back. Then they were brought back from Europe by the pilgrims. Hmm. Uh, this is often what's called the Columbian Exchange. Uh, but 
even that term is Eurocentric. Mm-hmm. It implies that, you know, it, it was really, you know, just the effects on Indians of Columbus's coming. But, but Europeans were as much affected, if not more, than Indians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you ask in the introduction for us to imagine the perfectly plausible situation of a, of a prosperous Dutch shipping merchant sitting in a coffee house in Amsterdam, maybe in the 18th century. I mean, he's smoking tobacco. He's sipping chocolate. Uh, his wealth is fueled by Indian and African slaves uh, working on plantations. Um, this cosmopolitan is but a single obvious beneficiary of both the red and black Atlantics. I mean, at this very, we, you know, in, in typical high school or even many, much of the college scholarship, if we're thinking about that Dutch merchant, we're not thinking about indigenous people and cultures and products and all of that. Um, and it seems like you're proposing that here. Well, absolutely. Uh, that example, if you if you just tease out the various elements, tobacco was a Western Hemisphere product uh, that uh, Indians gave to the English, and it was carried back. Chocolate was uh, a product of the Aztecs, uh, and uh, as um, we, we we tend to think of these things as natural things, but mm. they are as much products. Um, as cotton or any product you want to talk about. Hmm. Uh, and then his wealth fueled by uh, the Dutch slave trade through the Netherlands Antilles. These are all products uh, of this uh, exchange with uh, American indigenes. Hmm. So I think you can talk a bit about uh, the methodology uh, and the structure of the book, the kinds of texts and sources you you chose to consult, how you chose to organize them. You, you identify yourself uh, in the introduction principally as a theorist and a critic, and that certainly comes out here. Uh, but there's also a great deal of historical work as well. Uh, how did you decide to organize this book and put it together? Uh, I organized it first in the introduction around these uh different aspects of uh, the Red Atlantic, that being uh, physical movement of people, uh, technology, uh, ideas, uh, etc. Then there are a number of chapters that are framed around that physical movement of people, and each one frames kind of a a different or a number of different related roles played by Native peoples in this Red Atlantic. So initially as slaves and captives, although that continues throughout the period from 1000 to 1927, uh, then as soldiers and sailors in the service of others, uh, as diplomats, as performers and entertainers. So, so that's the basic structure. And then the, 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 before the conclusion, the final chapter is the last element that I haven't mentioned, which is the literature of the Red Atlantic, which I see as as integral to this as anything, which is that Europeans, both those that came here and those that remained in Europe, began after the Columbus event, certainly after the uh, advent of colonization, but almost immediately after the Columbus event, uh, 
begin to define themselves either in comparison with or in opposition to, which is still a comparison, mm -hmm. with the peoples of the New World. Uh, and so the Old World is formed, of course, by the New World. And so you have things like, and I don't go deeply into this particular example, but uh, Shakespeare's The Tempest is a fairly early attempt to come to terms with uh, the discovery of the New World. Um, takes place on Bermuda. Uh, Caliban is uh, a, a, a Carib Indian. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's trying to come to terms with these new peoples, and, and that continues on and on. That's the first piece of the literature. The second piece of the literature is uh, American uh, indigenous writers uh, responding to that and, and reacting to this colonization process, this Atlantic exchange. Hmm. Did you uh, revisit? Um, I mean, you've been you've been writing literary criticism for a long time now. Uh, did you revisit some books that you had already um, explored and thought about under this new framework of the Red Atlantic, uh, or or have you always sort of been thinking about some of these indigenous writers as as responding to that uh, that paradigm or that world? If that makes sense. No, oh, that's a very good question, and and the answer is I did. Uh, revisit uh, literature both about American Indians and by them within this new framework. Mm. For instance, I had written a short piece that appeared in my book, Other Words, back in 2001, uh, about Karl May, mm. a German writer who wrote romances about a German adventurer in the New World in the 18th and or the 19th and uh, early 20th century and I revisit that uh, in the same way I had written about for instance uh, Gerald Visner's Heirs of Columbus uh, but here I see it as a reaction to this kind of framing of identity, if you will, uh, based upon the, the frame created by Europeans. So, mm -hmm. yes, there are a number of works that I do revisit. Mm -hmm. I want to jump back uh, to the beginning again of this book. Um, and, you know, I was a bit surprised when I first uh, turned to the introduction to find Christopher Columbus in the opening sentence, uh, not because not only because the book's subtitle indicates 1000 as the Red Atlantic's origin, but also because this work is so much about reconfiguring our notions of, of modernity or exchange or the Atlantic world. And yet when I got to the end of that section, I loved how you um, discuss or posit that Columbus didn't initiate the Red Atlantic, but rather re-inaugurated it. Now, what do you mean by that? And, and by way of that, uh, what do you, why start in the year 1000? Right. The, uh, Atlantic world, uh, and particularly, again, going to Gilroy and his Black Atlantic, is about, his Black Atlantic is about diasporic Africans uh, contending with and being shaped by modernity. Mm -hmm. Modernity 
is commonly, although it, it's a contested notion, is thought of as commencing in 1492 with the discovery of the so-called New World, also coincides with the rise of the nation-state after uh, the Moors are expelled from the Iberian Peninsula by the Catholic monarchs. And, and, and so that's where I begin the narrative of, uh, that you're citing at the very beginning of um, the, the, the introduction. Mm -hmm. However, Natives have been contending with Europe and contending with modernity for a much longer period of time, both at the beginning and at the end, and that's why the frame is 1,000 to 1927. Mm -hmm. uh, 1,000 is when the Atlantic exchange is actually contrary to what uh, most Atlantic world history uh, would say. 1,000, that exchange is inaugurated because that's when the Vikings come to the New World, landing in what is today Canada. They initiate trade. They begin the exploitation of North American indigenous resources. In the first instance, timber, because they have Greenland, which is devoid of trees, and already Europe is becoming denuded of trees. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then they engage in conflict with the natives uh, when that trade goes bad. And finally, they initiate the captivity, which leads to slavery, uh, of indigenes by snatching uh, a couple of uh, probably Bayatuk uh, boys, carrying them back to Iceland, perhaps on to Scandinavia, uh, baptizing them in Christianity, a big import this uh, toward, the, uh, toward North America, uh, from Europe, of course, uh, training them uh, to serve as interpreters mm -hmm. when they continue trade or negotiations or diplomacy or what have you. We don't really know much of what happened to those boys, but that's the initiative moment. And then it continues all the way through uh, the First World War when American natives, both from Canada and the United States, uh, went to Europe in large numbers uh, to fight for the Allies. Uh, and on through uh, uh, an exploratory mission by Nud Rasmussen, who was Danish and Inuit, uh, to Greenland and then across Arctic America. Uh, Descahe, uh, Iroquois diplomats, attempts to gain recognition of Iroquois claims before uh, the League of Nations. And I conclude, and all periodizations are arbitrary, I conclude... Uh, with 1927 because it's my contention that that's when Lindbergh's solo flight across the Atlantic changed forever how we interacted with the Atlantic because now we could fly over it. We didn't really have to contend with the Atlantic. Mm. Mm. 
I actually want to return to the story of uh, Descaje. Um, one of the central themes you explore here, uh, as you've mentioned there, is is indigenous statecraft and diplomacy uh, in the Atlantic world. And I, I really uh, think the story of Descaje is, is remarkable and not well known enough, or certainly not often told in the context of the League of Nations or the post-war uh, shaping of the world after post World War One, of course. Um, I'm hoping you can tell, talk a little bit more about what brings uh, Levy General, better known as as Descahe, this Tadadaho of the Iroquois Grand Council in Ontario, uh, to Geneva to the League of Nations uh, on behalf of Haudenosaunee uh, claims in the early 1920s. And, and also, as an addendum to that, it also sounds like you went and visited Geneva at some point in the in the research of this book and and how that played in as well. Sure. Uh, yes. Well, uh, until World War One and through World War One, Canadian foreign affairs, external affairs, were the province of Great Britain. Uh, that's why Canada. The saying was, when World War One began, when Great Britain's at war, Canada is at war, and Great Britain had always been content largely, uh, to deal with the Haudenosaunee uh, as a separate sovereignty, uh, apart from Canada. After World War One, Canada begins to assert itself uh, as its own independent sovereign, independent of Great Britain, and they want to suppress Haudenosaunee or Iroquois sovereignty. So they take a number of measures to impose their will upon uh, the Six Nations there, uh, including invading uh, the reserves, uh, seizing wampum belts, trying to displace traditional Haudenosaunee governance, and Descahe, uh, as the Speaker of the Grand Council, then travels to Geneva, the seat of the League of Nations, in order to try to get, and there are some intervening steps, he, he first goes to Great Britain to try to get redress, and, and, and they reject him. Uh, he then goes to try to get the League of Nations to recognize Haudenosaunee claims and uh, reverse these steps that Canada has taken. There are there is a lot of procedural procedural wrangling. Um, he needs someone to sponsor him. Uh, he first has the Dutch under pressure; they withdraw. He then gets other sponsors, and they he, he realizes, along with his attorney, that there is a clause that says that any sovereign who's willing to accept the responsibilities of the Charter of the League of Nations can have a voice. And it is a very kind of backdoor way of getting the League of Nations to recognize Haudenosaunee sovereignty. Mm. Unfortunately, Great Britain uh, goes behind his back, even, and 
uh, he never gets a hearing. He does deliver a public address at a hall in Geneva, uh, which is widely covered, and he engages in this very complicated statecraft. Ultimately, it's futile. Mm. Um, he comes home uh, kind of a broken man. He can't go back to Canada because of the political situation, and he dies um, in New York State shortly after giving his last major radio address. But it's one of the great stories of Iroquois statecraft, uh, a tradition that, as I point out, uh, both preceded it with people like Joseph Brandt, before and during the American Revolution and after the American Revolution, um, all the way down to uh, contemporary Seneca Tom White Wolf Bassett, who really was the one who brokered uh, the deal that ended the Alien Gonzalez case, the Cuban boy refugee case. I had actually no idea about his role uh, in in that case, and of course, also uh, Orrin Lyons and other uh, Haudenosaunee leaders who who I think were quite involved with the UN Declaration on Indigenous Rights and and maintained absolutely. And uh, John Mohawk's slim book, Basic Call to Consciousness, talks about that. And when uh, the Iroquois, with some other indigenous representatives, went to Geneva, now the European headquarters of the United Nations, in exactly those same buildings. Mm. And you ask about uh, uh, my travel. I always, whenever I write a book, find it necessary to visit the sites that these people saw, to kind of walk in their footsteps. And, of course, there are too many people in <laughs> the scope of the Red Atlantic for me that for me to do that for everyone, but Descahe was one, uh, and then Warren Lyons after, of course, the closure of the Red Atlantic, but I, but I felt obligated to go there and see what he would have seen mm-hmm. and where, and, and the place from which he would have been turned away. Yeah. Where, where else did you, did you visit and, uh, and explore during your, your, your research or before the research for this book? Uh, I went to Peru. Uh, I write about, um, an Inca writer named uh, Garcilaso de la Vega. Uh, and so I went to Cusco uh, to see uh, his home, uh, which used to be the site of the archives. The archives are now at a university there in Cusco, and I, I uh, visited those. I went to uh, Sevilla uh, in Spain, which is the site of the archives of the Council of the Indies. I uh, went to um, uh, St. Augustine, Florida, which is the site of uh, what is today the Castillo San Marco National Monument, when it was an American fortress after the uh, session of Florida by Spain to the United States. It was called Fort Marion, and it was there uh, in the 19th, uh, into the early 20th century, that uh, a number of Indian prisoners of war uh, were uh, interned. And that's kind of the capstone of the chapter on slavery and captivity. Mm. Did, did you get to uh, to Egypt, where Ganawage is uh, traveled? 
I have never, I've never <laughs> been to, e- never, never been to Egypt where the Ganawagis uh, uh, led the expedition in 1885. <laughs> that's, that's an incredible story. I, had, I really had no idea, um, you know. And I, I'm someone who who spends a lot of time thinking about, you know, Haudenosaunee history. I, I never knew that. Um, it's, it's one of the ma- many uh, sort of surprises in this in this book. Um, well, well, you ask if if uh, I revisited a text or text that I had written about. That that is a text I had written about before. Uh, again, in my book, other words, but I discovered this little book by the Mohawk leader of that expedition of boatmen, Lewis Jackson, called Our Ganawagis in Egypt. And I called up my friend Chris Jocks, who is from Ganawagi, and asked if people there knew the story. Because mm. uh, I had obtained a copy of the book. Uh, and he said, yes, they knew the story, but uh, they did not at Ganawagi have a copy of the book. Well, it, it happened that when I discovered the book and wanted to read about it, the only copy we could find on interli- for interlibrary loan was at the University of Maine, and they weren't about to send an 1885 book by interlibrary loan, so uh, they sent a microfiche of it. Hmm. So I had the microfiche copied and printed out and sent that to Chris, who then sent it on to Ganawagi. So... I'm indirectly responsible <laughs> for Ganawagi having a copy of that little book. Amazing. That's an incredible story. Um, what, what can you tell me about Paul Cuffey, who who figures into one of your chapters here? You write about the two Paul Cuffeys and, and uh, why you decided to, to write about him, and how does he figure into the, the Red Atlantic? Right. Uh, Paul, the two Paul Cuffeys, father and son, Paul Cuffey and Paul Cuffey right, Jr., right. Um, figure into uh, most significantly into the chapter on soldiers and sailors. Paul Cuffey was the son of an Ashanti, Ashanti um, man who had been brought here as a slave, had managed to purchase his freedom, and who had married uh, a woman from uh, the gay head Wampanoag. And he, so he's a mixed ancestry, uh, and he has come down to us as a man, and I'll tell you about his career in just a second, but he had come down to us historically for peculiar reasons as a man who was just African-American. The Indianness was erased, despite the fact that he was half, um, Wampanoag, and that he had gone to lengths to marry a gay head Wampanoag woman so that his offspring, his children, would have a clan within the Algonquian system. He uh, begins during the American Revolution in an open boat with his brother, uh, blockade running and carrying some freight intercoastally. Uh, He eventually amasses a fleet of ships uh, and becomes the wealthiest man of color in the United States. Uh, 
doing shipping, whaling, whatever. And as a ship's captain, he almost always sailed with a crew that was entirely people of color, largely uh, mixed blood, African-American, Native Americans. Uh, he was the first uh, man of African-American descent to meet with the president at the White House, uh, although not the first native to meet with an American president. Uh, Cherokee diplomats had been had met with George Washington, mm -hmm. among others. His son then follows his father to sea, uh, and the son publishes a small autobiography. There had been a memoir written for the first Paul Cuffey by a British abolitionist, and that's what and he wanted to promote his Africanness. As uh, as a story of abolition and racial uplift, that's one of the basic reasons that these have come down to us is just African Americans. Mm -hmm. And uh, but Cuffey Jr. writes his own uh, short memoir, and he was a whaler. Uh, he also did other kinds of maritime labor, but principally a harpooner on whalers. And it is widely assumed. We know that uh, Herman Melville was aware of these uh, people and uh, this family, and it's widely assumed that Paul Cuffey Jr. is the model for Tash Chico, the gay-head Wampanoag harpooner in uh, Moby Dick. I mean, after all, there's a reason that um, Melville names his ship in Moby Dick the Pequod, uh, lorded over by the white captain over a mixed-race crew, uh, Native Americans, particularly mixed-race Native Americans, uh, provided a lot of the labor on the ships that sailed out of uh, Nantucket and uh, Mystic and so forth during uh, the era of whaling. Hmm. It reminds me also of the, you know, which you mentioned too, the story of of Crispus Attucks, uh, who also is is oftentimes portrayed um, simply as or or only of African African American descent, is another New England character with with uh, a huge place in American history, but who also is part native. Right. His mother was a Massachusetts Indian, another Algonquian, uh, closely related people to the the ones we we're just talking about, and in. Gilroy's book, as I point out, one of his only two mentions of indigenous peoples refers to the Indians in inverted commas uh, that were slaughtered by Europeans, and the other is to Crispus Attucks. And in the second instance, uh, he fails to mention hmm. that Attucks was also native. Hmm. So... You know, as much as anything, this is a book like Gilroy's that is positing uh, a new framework for understanding the Atlantic world. And, and as such, then it's creating a context for, for future studies that you, you call for this in, in the introduction as well. What do you hope comes out of this work? Where do you see this kind of scholarship going? Where would you like to see it go? Well, Gilroy's concept of the Black Atlantic, which dates from 1993, that's when he published the book. I mean, the concept itself predates that somewhat, right. but uh, has been refined and researched and amplified, um, you know, for the last uh, 20 years. Uh, 
I would hope something similar would be provoked by the Red Atlantic in that I try not to be a catalog Mm -hmm. of every connection, of every person uh, that traveled the Atlantic, and and, and, and every idea or whatever that traveled in one direction or the other. Uh, I leave that for others, uh, and I would hope that something similar to what's happened with Gilroy's concept would happen. Already, there are some younger scholars uh, who are uh, picking up the baton. Uh, Cole Thrush uh, at the University of British Columbia is finishing up a book on indigenous London, and I see that as very much related to this, as does he. Uh, Christine DeLucia uh, is uh, working on uh, the exiles from King Philip's War in uh, the late 1600s who were sold into slavery uh, in the Caribbean. And and so I would hope that would happen. The the, the final thing that I hope will happen, uh, there are probably many things I hope will happen, but one other thing that I hope will happen is... Although I mentioned just briefly a couple of connections, it's far beyond the scope of the Red Atlantic, is to explore the Pacific. And if there is a Pacific equivalent of the Red Atlantic. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you actually about the, the cover image for this book, which I really love. Uh <laughs> Where, where did you come across this? I know, I know you 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 collect uh, and 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 are quite knowledgeable about artists, native artists. Uh, where did you where did you come across this image, and why did you choose to put it on the cover? Well, authors often have very little control over what goes on covers. I right. had more input this time uh-huh. <laughs> than, than most. Um, the cover image is a, a beautiful, kind of whimsical image by a Cherokee artist that I know named America Meredith, fabulous artist. And I don't own this piece, uh, but I own a couple of things by her. Mm. Um, I had suggested a couple of images to the University of North Carolina Press for the cover, and for a variety of reasons, they didn't want them, they shot them down, which is pretty typical of author's relationships to presses on these things. And and they said, what we really want is a picture of an Indian on a ship. And I said, good luck finding that. (laughs) Uh, And and as we talked about it, then this occurred to me. And and I should describe the image. The image is of New England coastline uh, and a family of Indians waving goodbye um, to St. Brendan, the Irish saint, who, according to legend, and I mentioned the legend a couple of times, not giving it any credibility, uh, in a coracle, visited North America prior to Columbus. And St. Brendan is sailing away. The name of the piece is he came, he saw, he went back home, <laughs> leaving no presence, yeah. as opposed to the Europeans who came and stayed. Right. Um, and uh, at any rate, so I suggested this image, uh, a 
America was willing to give me permission to use it. I also knew the owner of the piece, uh, and I suggested it, and they, uh, North Carolina really liked it. I think it's beautiful. I, it's colorful. I love the, uh, the kind of yellow and brick red contrast uh, as the main colors. Um, and so that's the image. I love the, the 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 Europeans are sailing away. Also, what looks like on the on the back of a whale, who it looks like he might be wearing a baseball cap, but I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, might be maybe just I, my I interpretation. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I, he, uh, the whale is either swimming alongside or lifting uh-huh. up the boat, carrying them away. Yeah. and I had never noticed what looks like a baseball cap. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've been speaking with Jace Weaver. He's the Franklin Professor of Native American Studies and Religion at the University of Georgia. He also directs the Institute of Native American Studies, from which I am a proud alumni. Uh, We've been discussing his new book, The Red Atlantic, American Indigenes and the Making of the Modern World, 1000 to 1927. It's just out from the University of North Carolina Press. Uh, Dr. Weaver, if I'm not mistaken, as I said, this is maybe the 10th or 11th book you've authored or edited. Uh, but I have to ask, what's what's next? Uh, I'm, I'm currently working on a book on... Um, it's a little departure for me, but it's an obscure, precipitating incident, but it's a series of incidents. Um uh, set, set in Oklahoma, beginning in 1917, uh, in Oklahoma in the first decades of the 20th century, uh, several things were true about it. One was it had the highest native population of any state in the country. Second of all, uh, it, uh, was the most socialist state in the Union, and those two are not unrelated. Mm. And the third is it had the highest Klan population after 1915 of any state in the country. Wow. These forces then come into inevitable conflict. And in 19, it begins in 1917 during World War One. There's an incident called the Green Corn Rebellion, Uh, And in that, Seminoles and Muscogee Creeks, in alliance with socialists and African-American tenant farmers, stage a rebellion in Oklahoma, very ill-defined as to what their goals were, but at their most grandiose, they were to march on Washington, depose President Wilson, in the draft and in the American involvement in World War One, in the Great War, yeah. uh, the like so many of these, uh, it's betrayed internally and is over before it begins. But this sets off a chain of events of conflicts between socialists and Indians on the one hand, labor and Indians, and the Klan on the other, uh, that continues into the 1920s and culminates with the Klan being able to uh, impeach uh, an Oklahoma governor, uh, 
and remove him, have him removed from office. Uh, and but then, as a result of the national glare on Oklahoma, although this governor who had imposed martial law to try to break the back of the Klan, and that's what got him impeached. But the glare, the public glare from around the nation on Oklahoma led to, uh, after his impeachment, Oklahoma becoming the first state to pass anti-Klan legislation against the so-called second Klan, 1915 to, through the 1920s. And so breaking the back, becoming the first state to break the back of the Klan in the United States. That's an incredible story. I I, uh, I can't wait to to read more about it. <laughs> so we'll have you back on this I, program. I, I can't I can't wait to write it. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, we'll have you back for the third uh, uh, the third interview uh, for uh, new books in Native American studies. Doctor Reaver, thank you so much for uh, joining me today and talking about the Red Atlantic. Well, thanks for having me. Bye bye. Bye. That was Jace Weaver, author of The Red Atlantic, American Indigenes and the Making of the Modern World, 1000-1927, from the University of North Carolina Press. And this is New Books in Native American Studies. Check us out on iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, and at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein. Thanks for listening.